This episode of Scandal Water contains adult themes and descriptions of violence. It is not intended for all audiences. Listener discretion is advised. Welcome to Scandal Water, where the tea is hot and the conversation lively. Your hosts, Candy and Ashley, will discuss a peculiar story somehow related to the entertainment industry. This podcast might not change the world, but it just might satisfy your thirst for an intriguing tale. Oh, it's that time of day. Tune in and hear what the ladies say. It's time to bend your ear when the silver screen appears. Stories about the stage and screen and everything in between. So come on and join the fun. The curtain opens in three, two, one. Stories and scandal water. It's where you need to be. Stories and scandal water. Let's pour you a cup of tea. Hello, Ashley. Hello, Candy. This theme is just fascinating. Mm-hmm. This idea of in our own backyards, and of course, what we're we are zooming in on are kind of tragic things right. that happened in our own backyards. And this one is one that I think I have found even more fascinating because I was totally unaware of this. As was I. Yes. Yes. And the suggestion actually came from Brian. Yes. You- I told him that you were looking for things that kind of events that were a little bit tied to entertainment that had happened in. Kentucky for our September theme and the very first thing he said was this topic and I looked it up I looked up the pictures and I sent it to you and you said we have to cover this absolutely this is one of those things where it's far enough in the past that it wasn't on my radar at mm-hmm. all mm-hmm. yet it's recent enough 1977 that there is so much archival information so many photos so many video clips so many people today who still remember and talk about this mm-hmm. That as I was researching, I just I just became so invested in this. Oh, my heart goes out yeah. to everyone involved in this. Guys, the topic is the Beverly Hills Supper Club fire, the tragedy right. that occurred in 1977. If you are like us and you also knew nothing about this, I'm going to play just a few seconds from this video. It's a more recent clip where they have a reporter named Nick Clooney. He's reflecting back. But what I want you to hear is a few seconds they play from the 1977 okay. news coverage. Okay. All right. So this will just be a few seconds. Our major story this evening, the story of death and Holocaust at Beverly Hills Supper Club south of Newport and the sky just went black. It was just this huge plume of smoke. I, I remember one of the firemen turned to me and he said they're piled up like cordwood in there. How many people uh, are still in the building? We do not know. We'll stop there. Ooh, I got goosebumps. But that's the type of thing that was happening with this incident. It is absolutely heartbreaking. Mm-hmm. But we will talk about at the end that some good did come out of it. Yes. But let's go ahead and, and jump on in. We've already said neither one of us had any awareness of this at all. And going into this episode, all the awareness I have had is I looked through archival photos mm-hmm. before I sent it to you and I kind of read a synopsis of it, but I have left the deep dive to you. So I'll be learning along with our listeners. 
Okay, well, I guarantee you're going to find it as fascinating as I did. So going back to the beginning, it's funny. This is another one of those instances where there were lots of conflicting information, Mm -hmm. even about the date that the original Supper Club opened. But most of them seem to agree it was 1937. And when it first opened, it was, even back then, a very, very popular nightclub that also included a little illegal gambling. It had Mm -hmm. a back room where some of these illegal activities were going on. Lots of different sources said that the mob might have been involved with this. Seems like it's up their alley. Yes, over the years. In fact, that seemed to be a definite thing. Located in Southgate, Kentucky, just across the Ohio River from Cincinnati, it was known for offering some of the best entertainment between New York and Chicago. And some of the personalities that performed on the stage over the years were people like Jimmy Durante, Milton Berle, Carol Channing, Lena Horne, Liberace, Frank Sinatra, Dean Martin, Sid Caesar. I mean, all... These These are icons. Yes, absolutely. Well, in the early 1960s, there was a crackdown. They were trying to clean up all these illegal activities, including mob-run clubs, which of course meant the Beverly Hills was part of that. And so when they tried to kind of clean it up, it actually caused the club to shut down. So in the mid-1960s, it closed and fell into disrepair. And then a man named Richard Schilling purchased the property and he decided in 1970 to refurbish the whole thing, spending, now think about how much this was at that time, more than $3 million in renovations and was going to turn this into this absolute stunning showpiece. I mean, just huge. I think they said 54,000 square feet, just a beautiful opulent building. Now, an interesting little side note is during that renovation process back in 1970, there was actually a fire then too that set them back. Oh, but then they rebuilt, they refurbished again. I don't know if it took the whole building out, but, mm-hmm. but there was a fire. I did not see this across multiple sources. There were some rumors or some talk of possible arson back then, but that mm-hmm. was not something I saw across news sources. It was only one or two places where people were speculating. Okay. Now that means that the supper club, as we are going to be talking talking about it, opened again, reopened in 1971 as a dinner theater. It did not have a casino this time, but it again became very, very popular, not only for its entertainment, but also as an event space where people would rent rooms and they would have weddings or wedding receptions or anniversary celebrations, proms, that type of thing. So this was huge and it was luxurious. It earned the nickname, the show place of the Midwest. That's a big deal. And here it is. It's right there near people like it was in a great location a great spot and some people said that it was basically affordable you could Mm -hmm. afford to have your wedding there and just to give you an idea of how beautiful it was it had a hall of mirrors walls lined with oil paintings the ceilings had crystal chandeliers dangling from them you had red carpeted floors there was a grand staircase I saw at one point I think they had like a little indoor waterfall it's opulent opulent is the word exactly and they had all these different rooms I believe I saw somewhere it was something like 18 and they gave them different names based on their themes. So you had a zebra room and a Viennese room and a garden room. The cabaret room was the room. The performance room? Yes. 
place okay. where you normally had a lot of your entertainment. Okay. Okay. The entertainment though, you know, we said we've got the event spaces, but the entertainment was a huge draw. One of the busboys at the time of the fire was quoted as saying, you know, later when he was reflecting, he said it was considered the showplace of the nation on the East Coast. All the main entertainers from Vegas would come there to perform. Interesting that he says the East Coast when we're not really near the East Coast. Yeah, I guess. I don't know. I'd, I'd say mid, I'd say the Midwest, mm-hmm. like we're in the Midwest. Yeah. So many different interviews came across my radar. Honestly, we could talk for like a week, I think. Mm-hmm. There was so much information, but I, I had to pick and choose. I thought this was interesting. I think everybody's heard in this area of Jeff Ruby because of the Jeff Ruby Steakhouse. Yes. He was present the night of the fire. Oh, he was. He was there with friends the oh. evening of the fire. So a lot of segments would feature him offering some of his memories. One of the interviews I saw was something he did for the Lexington News in 2021 on the advent of the 44th anniversary of the tragedy. Mm-hmm. And his description of the Supper Club was this, quote, there was no place like it where you could see Vegas acts in such glamour and glitz. Private parties, weddings. I remember seeing Red Fox in the lounge. Wow. That's kind of the context of this place. On May 28th, 1977, which was the start of the Memorial Day weekend, the entertainment was a man that I don't think a lot of us maybe are very familiar with nowadays, but he was huge, huge. at the time. Huge. Megastar. Yeah. It was singer and actor John Davidson. Now, are you familiar with him? I didn't know him by name, but when I saw his face, I was like, oh, I know this guy. And he was the host of Hollywood Squares. Yes. And I watched him on Hollywood Squares forever. Yeah. So that's what I knew him from. I did not know that he was a singer. Well, apparently he was very versatile. When I started researching him a little bit, okay, he was kind of like a little bit like a Pat Boone. He was Mm -hmm. known for his clean image Mm -hmm. and his great voice and his great hair. But he he did have great hair. He, he really did. But he starred in movies. He sang on Broadway. He headlined in Vegas. He subbed for Johnny Carson on The Tonight Show more than 85, I think it was 87 times. Oh, wow. And he, he had his own talk show at one point. As you've said, he hosted some game shows. They said at his peak through the 1970s and into the 1980s, he earned $75,000 a week performing in Vegas, which what? would be nearly half a million in our money today. A week? Mm-hmm. Yeah. So he's pretty big. He was a mega star at that time. And he was like all over the news because at one point he had a date with Karen Carpenter. He sang with Mama Cass. He hung out with Kenny Rogers. This dude was huge. Mm-hmm. And I think a lot of people from the early 80s may remember him being the host, one of the hosts of a show called That's Incredible. Now, I don't know that show. Okay. This particular night, he's a draw. They were selling tickets for $10. Which... I can afford that. <laughs> <laughs> it was more in 1977. Well, yeah, that's true. But you could still do it. Yeah. You could still do it. And the audience was packed. I bet. Being Thinking about how big he was at that time. Yeah. Yeah. This was a common theme across all the sources. They oversold. Like mm. when they had great entertainment they over they packed the house they absolutely did bring in some extra chairs put in some extra tables get as many people in this room as you can because Mm -hmm. this is a hot item Mm -hmm. so most of the sources said there were approximately 3,000 people
people in the building. Now, not necessarily all for this entertainment, because remember... There's other rooms there and other, other things rooms, going other on. Other things going on, exactly. But according to an article in the Dayton Daily News, the cabaret room alone, which is the room where the entertainment was happening, contained 1,200 people, which was at least 300 more than its designated capacity. Oh, no. Some sources said it was... Double? It was, yeah, that the, the capacity was even lower. Oh. So definitely overcrowded. That theme came up so much, I pulled a quote from a woman named Cindy Triber. She had attended she was not there the night of the fire but she had attended an event six months before the fire and she was quoted in a 1997 newspaper article just to kind of give context Mm -hmm. as saying quote it was so crowded that a waitress could not walk her way into our group to serve drinks for the first time in my life I was scared I looked at Bob who was her husband and asked him how we would get out of there if something happened oh she had like a feeling yeah but that's the kind of sardine like atmosphere Mm -hmm that the people were in who Mm -hmm. had come to see John Davidson. As we've said, this building was used for other things. On this particular night, there was actually a wedding reception that was taking place in the zebra room that ended around 8.30 p.m. And it was reported that some of the people attending that reception actually complained that the room was warm and smoky (gasps) when they left. One source said that there was even some comments about it being uncomfortably warm to the point that the butter was melting on their tables. Oh, no. Mm -hmm. But maybe they thought it was all the body heat? Well, I mean, they complained to the staff like they felt like this was something unusual this was something that needed to be reported now again I had to piece together details which were sometimes conflicting so I'm going with the version of events that I saw most often okay okay so the basic story of how this happened seemed to be that around 8 45 p.m a female employee some sources said waitress some just said staff member noticed smoke and opened the zebra room's door kind of looking for the cause of the smoke which we're gonna later and the zebra room is where the wedding party was mm-hmm. okay yes now from all accounts that we'll come back to later this all seemed to be emanating from the ceiling um oh. we're gonna come back to it seemed to be this small fire that was smoldering in the ceiling okay. okay now again conflicting reports some sources said that the employees didn't see flames but knew there was trouble because they started seeing smoke now the smoke is a that is a definite there was definitely smoke and and feeling like heat like it was getting really hot near the ceiling Mm -hmm. but there were some other sources that straight up said employees saw flames at some point in fact I pulled a quote from a 1977 Washington Post article that said quote several waitresses in one dining area tried unsuccessfully to put the fire out with portable extinguishers interesting Mm -hmm. regardless it is a known fact that one of the staff members we think it's this woman told somebody to call the fire department the fire department received a call at 901 p.m. and they were on the scene within three to four minutes at which time the firefighters sent several trucks the first ones in line could already see smoke coming from the building at this point by the time they got there which was around 905 wow but an immediate problem for them was the way that this club it was so huge the parking yes getting through all those cars it sat on this isolated spot it was a 17 acre site and so the club itself was kind of atop this hill and so you had to kind of wind up this road to get to it and then you had your parking lots of Uh course it was so jam-packed they had cars all over the parking lot but they also had all these cars lining the road leading up to the club 
And by the time they're getting there, people are spilling out of the club. You've got people milling around who are like evacuating the building. Evacuating or just leaving? At this point, there are some people evacuating the building. Okay. Okay, We're going to kind of go back in the timeline a few seconds to what was happening inside. Okay. But so they are already basically hitting a traffic jam in some cases. And it was reported by somebody in the Carolina Fire Rescue EMS Journal that the location of the fire trucks where they had to stop relative to the building made for, quote, extremely long hose lays for water supply. Mm -hmm. So Mm -hmm. it made it hard to get the hoses and the water to the building. Okay, but... Let's go back into the building. Remember, the employees saw trouble. Yep, they've called the fire department. By 9.01, they're already concerned enough that they have called for help. And what happened next is they didn't realize it at the time, but the act of opening that door had actually... Yes, it had actually allowed oxygen into the space, which had caused the fire that they think was smoldering up in the ceiling to ignite. And so it did not take, and the smoke, the smoke was a huge prevalent thing. So the employees who were kind of in this area and part of this conversation, they had figured out, this is a serious problem. We need to be doing something. Now, at this point in the evening, John Davison has not yet started to perform. Okay. 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 Who's on stage is his opening act. It's this two-man team. I think they had a ventriloquist dummy, several probably. So it was a short little comedy show that was like the Mm warm-up. And they're the ones who were on stage. The same Dayton Daily News article I referenced just a bit ago. This is so cool. He actually came up in so many different sources and and he gave interviews later. But there was an 18-year-old busboy named Walter Bailey. And he tried to say to one of the supervisors, we've got to do something. Like this is like they could see things were escalating quickly. He was like, we've got to tell people we've got to do something. And the supervisor was kind of like, ah, you know, like he was indecisive. This 18 year old boy walked onto the stage, interrupted the comedy team. It was these two gentlemen, Jim Teeter and Jim McDonald, the the opening act. And he he basically got the mic from them and he delivers a a little statement, an announcement to everybody seated in the room. Here's how he told it later. These are Walter's words. I climbed on stage. I appear in front of the comedians and they look at me and I went toward the one on the left reaching for his mic and to my surprise he handed it to me and I turned toward the audience and said I'd like everyone's attention if you look to your right you'll see an exit if you look behind you you'll see another exit and in the left corner you'll see another one we need everyone to leave the building there's a fire in the building oh goodness it gives me chills too how calm he was how he pointed out the exits like find the exit closest to you oh man I hope he went into like service positions later like please People gave, he didn't. He actually ended up going to college and I saw that he he had like, I think a business degree and he did mm. something in business and was very successful. But so many people gave him the same kudos that you did. They said this 18 year old boy, this teenager mm-hmm. performed probably the biggest life-saving yes. act of this evening. Yes. And they talked about his calm and how he prevented panic and you know, just, oh. He didn't get up there and scream, the building's on fire, you have to run, get out. He yes. just said, look behind you, look to your right, look to your left we need to leave the building yeah unbelievable and he's thinking he's going to get fired because Mm -hmm. at this point he doesn't know are they going to be able to put this out easily Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. but he just felt like he had to do this here's the terrible part a lot of people didn't take him seriously they thought it was part of the act exactly a woman named norma lou mitchell who was there that night said later he seemed like he was part of the act and that was a theme so many of them said now some people did so what happened was you had there's so many people in this room there were some people who were like kind of like oh okay and and they had been smelling smoke several 
several people reported they'd actually been smelling smoke for a while, but it was kind of like, oh, it must be no big deal, you know, either or something in the kitchen. Yeah, something in the kitchen, or or it's been this way for a while, no big deal. But some people start to filter out. Nobody seems to feel urgency, and a lot of the people don't move because they either didn't pay attention or they think it's all a joke. At least the news has been conveyed. Yeah, though. yeah. Okay. Jeff Ruby was one of the ones who did listen. He's one of the ones who gave credit to uh-huh. Walter later for doing such a wonderful thing. And I believe Jeff Ruby, that was his cue to kind of head out the building. While many did not immediately take Walter's warning to heart or really understand what was going on, there was an awareness now and other red flags just start piling up mm-hmm. fast. And very, very quickly. Yes, yes. That's something that, I mean, um, there were so many things about this that struck me. This is just the most tragic story. But I was taken aback time and time again at how fast everything escalated. Mm-hmm. Like if you did not make split second decisions in this event. It was life or death. Th- that, that was it for some people. Mm-hmm. What did happen was staff members Members are aware, not everybody, because think about how many staff, but those who were in the vicinity who are aware of what's happening, who are who are picking up on it, they start trying to get people out and spread the word in other ways. Mm-hmm. So for example, there's a man named John Hoyle. He was the chief executive officer from the St. Luke Hospital. He was actually at the supper club that night with his wife and some members of his medical staff. And he was in the cabaret room the night, you know, there to see John Davidson. And he remembers a busboy telling him, quote, there is a fire. You have to leave. Go across the hall. Go across the Empire Room. And he listened to that busboy and he did leave. Now, he had to go through this route because something was blocked and he had to go a different way. But John Hoyle ultimately escaped and immediately had to join the medical workers who were treating the people who were caught in the fire, injured in the fire. So he's escaping from a fire that he can't see. He goes outside and he starts treating people who are in the fire. Yeah, he ends up becoming one of the medical workers who would work for like just hours all upon night. hours mm-hmm. yeah, absolutely another busboy shared that when he saw all the heavy smoke and realized how serious the situation was he literally just started running to different places in this massive sprawling building for example he remembered specifically going to the bar area and he would just yell at people you have to get out there's a fire but again this place is huge and people were in all the nooks and crannies i mean think about 3000 people and there was no fire alarm back then i'm assuming no fire alarm mm-hmm. no sprinklers Mm-hmm. Some survivors, as I've said, remembered they smelled smoke for a while, but it suddenly escalated. When that fire ignited... Which we think happened when they opened the door to the zipper room. That definitely was something that caused it to take off. Okay. And then it just went crazy because they said that it started shooting down the hallways and then of course it would catch on things we'll talk about that in just a second but black smoke started to pour into Mm. the cabaret room some people would later describe it using words like heavy hot sickening and sour Mm. one person later described it as smelling like a hundred tires burst into flames now oh yeah i can picture that kind of smell then sickening yeah that's that's a good way to describe that tires burning would be a horrible smell yeah and and the thickness of it how it affects your visibility yeah and here's the other thing i think a lot of people die from smoke inhalation before they die from the flames is that right absolutely i don't mean in this case i mean in general with the fire well in this case it was way worse because what investigators 
investigators would later come to realize was that the smoke was toxic. Mm. It was straight up toxic in this case because the materials that had been used in this building, so many of them were these synthetic things that had toxicity to them. Their carpets, the drapes, the seat cushions, wall coverings. I didn't see the word asbestos, but they said they were highly flammable and they emitted toxic fumes. Now, the other thing is the lights start flashing and they will ultimately go out. Mm. So you're in the dark trying to get through this black, thick smoke that's toxic. And And it's nighttime. Yes. And at this point now, absolute panic. Oh, yeah. Absolute panic has overtaken everyone because I can't even imagine. I can't even imagine. The other thing on top of all that we've described is because it's so crowded and there are so many obstructions in the way, people's paths are literally blocked. And there are only a few exits. People can't, they don't remember where they are. They can't see them Mm -hmm. and they can't get to them. And in some cases, now this was something that I saw time and time again. Several people said some of the exits were locked, but then another source was like, no, none of the exits were locked, but so many of them became blocked. They became blocked. In a 1977 article, the deputy coroner, Morris Garrett, was describing the panic that was going on inside the club. And he told the Associated Press that many of the people who would later be found dead were in areas of the building where they had headed for what they thought were exits. And the governor, who was on the scene by 2 a.m. that night, Mm -hmm. he added in a quote after this tragedy, it appeared that supper club attendants led a large group group to a curtained wall thinking that it was an exit or a window and instead they were trapped so you had people trampling Mm -hmm. you had people who couldn't get where they were going because they were blocked you had people who were being led to the wrong spot Mm -hmm. and in each case those split seconds could change everything Everything. for them whether they were going to make it out or whether they were going to be trapped inside so it gets oh my goodness it got so much more emotional as you're like reading about this because tragically what happened was the exits that were available, many of them became blocked by people's bodies. Mm-hmm. Bruce Rath, who was a Fort Thomas firefighter during this event, he was there, you know, trying to save people. He was quoted as saying, when I got to the inside doors, which is about 30 feet inside the building, I saw these big double doors and people were stacked like cordwood. Mm. They were clear up to the top. They just kept diving out on each other, trying to get out. I looked back over the pile and it wasn't dead people. There were dead and alive in that pile. And I went in and just started to grab them two at the time and pull them off the stack and drag them out. Mm. But the problem was that in so many cases, what had happened was they had to tell some of the firefighters, okay, you keep trying to douse the flames. You guys go try to help people get out yes. because they quickly realized- and They're stuck. So many of them, like they could not unstick these doors. Like they <sighs> could not get them to clear. And then it moved, the fire moved so fast that at some point they had to tell the firefighters and the rescuers, you have to get out Mm. because it was just too much. Yes, it was being consumed. Jeff Ruby, again, another quote from him. He and his friends did make it out that night, but he said, quote, bodies just trampled in front of that door that swung in. This was a door he was looking at. And those people just died there. Only a few people got out after we did, talking about the door that he himself managed to escape. Gosh. And then talking again about how fast it was, a journalist who ended up writing a book about this, we'll come back to him later, he reflected on this and said, split seconds meant life and death. Mm. We could be sitting at the same table and I made it out and you didn't just because you were sitting on the wrong side of the table. Yeah, yeah. And it took you a little bit longer to get to the door. Yeah. 
Absolutely. Walter, that busboy who made the announcement, obviously made it. He shared how he got out and what he saw. Here's his quote. So I get pushed out of this exit. And I and that's the other thing too. Like it was so many times the mob and the panic, like you would get caught yeah. in this crowd. Yeah. And you might get a shoved wave. at a door. And if that door didn't open, there's a possibility you might get crushed. Yeah. And, but in his case, he got pushed out of the exit. I'll fin- go back into his quote. And I go out into the garden area and I'm watching the building and right then an explosion occurs where the zebra room is and then another explosion and the garden rooms which were inside but with glass walls started to fill up with smoke a whole room filled up with smoke in less than a minute maybe 30 or 40 seconds people started throwing chairs through the glass and were running out wow so this is the kind of this is bedlam. The kind of sea- it's just is, pandemonium and bedlam. I heard terms like war zone. Yeah. I heard one man say, I think this was a rescuer who was trying to help. He said, "You can't imagine what people will do in situations yes, like right, this." It, right. It honestly is heartbreaking. It's sort of it's sort of reminding me right now of almost like the Titanic. Yes. Where it's just you may get on a lifeboat or you may not. Yeah. But in this case, so much faster and yes. fire coming at you. And yes. I mean, in this black smoke, it's just horrific. And then to think you might not be able to see at the same time that all this is happening. Mm-hmm. And also reminds me of the Carrollton bus crash. Yes, at 100%. Mm-hmm. Yeah. By the way, I've, I've said this, but I'll just blatantly put it out there. Some of the actual news reports or news footage from 1977 obviously gave some really powerful information. Mm-hmm. And they were also, they had a lot of detail. I did find this one really detailed 1977 article. I've now referenced it two or three times. It's in my show notes, but I'm going back to that again. They had an eyewitness account from a man named Matt Valentine who was working in the parking area. So therefore he was basically he was outside, the building. outside mm-hmm. but he was seeing things. He was standing by the main entrance when the fire broke out and he said, at first it didn't look too bad. There was a little smoke and a few people were coming out and then there was a big rush with people jumping over others to get out as smoke billowed. And then he went on to say and then suddenly the whole club was engulfed it was just so fast and coming back to this point about the smoke there's this very short clip I'm going to play for you, which I think kind of drives home how they didn't just have the panic and the fire. The smoke alone was this whole other entity. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So this is just a few seconds, but I'll let you hear this. More than 200 were hurt and 165 people dead. They had no chance, most of them. It, it went through there so fast and the cloud of toxic smoke from all of the synthetic substances that were in the building materials was absolutely poisoning. It was so toxic, people would walk out of that building and look perfectly fine, just like you and I, and fall dead within seconds because their lungs were just totally shot. Oh my goodness. Yeah. It's a whole other deadly threat beyond the fire was just breathing in that smoke. Oh my gosh. So that guy said they would get out of the building and look fine and just drop dead because that toxic smoke was in their lungs. I I couldn't. I couldn't even when I when I heard that. Mm. Unbelievable. Guys, it was one just heart-rending story after another, just to kind of give you a few examples. According to that same 1977 article, 
article, they said they recovered some of the bodies from inside the cabaret room, the people who had not gotten out, still seated in circles because apparently they were overcome by the smoke before they were even able to just even try to get out. Mm. So they were just at their dinner table slumped over? They were still seated, yes, at their table. Oh. Yeah. There were so many stories where people were heroic. For example, there was a man named Harold Russell Penwell who managed to push his wife, Karen, to safety, but then he didn't get out. Mm. He was only 28 years old, the father of two and the winner of the Bronze Star in Vietnam. There was a lady named Etta Lees who was 70 years old who died while she was trying to help a handicapped woman get out. Of course, the firefighters were very heroic. Five of them were among the 200 who were injured that night. On that night, they had 50 fire departments and more than 550 firefighters who ended up at that scene. Oh my goodness. Yeah, I pulled a quote from this chief who was talking, he was reflecting on this experience. Here's what he said. I think I can speak for the firefighters who were there when I say that May 28th, 1977 was the worst day of our firefighting career, but I believe it was also our finest hour. Every firefighter who was there either risked their life or was willing to risk their life to try and save those trapped. Over 2,000 patrons got out alive. Mm. And we'll come back to that too. That is, that's, that's a large that's number. That's the blessing that yeah. they did. You know, 2,000 people did make it. To finish his quote, even when it was clear that no one left in the building could be saved, firefighters went back into the building over and over to try and remove the bodies of those who perished. To this day, that haunts all of us who were there. It always will. Wow. The roof of the building collapsed around midnight. The fire was finally brought under control around 2 a.m. the next morning, but it continued to smolder until May 30th. Kentucky Governor Julian Carroll arrived at the scene around 2 a.m., as I've already said, and he made it clear that he was going to have a hand in directing Uh the investigation. Now, just to make this clear, we've alluded to it. Ultimately, 200 people were injured and 165 died as a result of this fire and the smoke. So 200 were injured plus another 165 who died. Died, okay. Yes. Now, some of those people didn't die until months later because they they just kept trying to save them and Mm -hmm. and ultimately couldn't. But yes, the final count was 165 people Mm. who died. And most of the people who died were in the cabaret room. Mm. Even to this day, this tragedy is the third deadliest nightclub fire in U.S. history. Wow. It is the Cincinnati area's deadliest fire. And I looked it up just because I wondered. It would come up when I would just Google. I didn't do a deep dive, but I just Googled deadliest nightclub fires in the world. This would come up on lists of like 10 to 15. It would make it. Wow. Yeah. So many people lost whole groups. There was one woman, for example, her name was Dana Stallings. She tried to escape the building with her family and she shared that it felt like the fire was chasing them Mm. and how hard it was. They couldn't see because the lights had gone out. And she remembered having to like shove and push to get through this door. But the rest of her family didn't make it. Oh, no. So she was only 21 at the time. She lost her mother, oh. two sisters, sister-in-law, her aunt, and her great aunt. Oh. In one fell swoop, oh. going there just to see, and you know, a performer. Mm-hmm. There was a group, the Edgewood City School District. They lost 13 members, 13 employees who had gone to celebrate the retirement of one of their teachers. Mm. 
there was a group of 82 people who went with the Dayton Automobile Club and 31 of them did not make it. People just lost like these whole groups of loved ones mm-hmm. or friends or family mm-hmm. in one I saw a photo, event. one of the pictures, I don't know if you have his story, but one of the photos was a man who I think had lost a bunch, several of his, he wasn't there that night, but I think he came and he too. had lost his mom and sisters just, yes. and he was just bereft. Yeah, I didn't, I saw his picture. I didn't include his story, but I saw it and it just breaks your heart. Mm-hmm. Well, John Davidson survived. He shared his story. He has not wanted to talk about this. This has been a traumatic, obviously, experience for him. But a few different times over the years, he would share just a little bit. He was backstage when smoke began to fill the building. He got outside. In fact, he said, quote, I was one of the lucky ones, got out through a door that was put in the year before. It was a, a back door entrance to the dressing room. He said, I decided we'll see how long we have to stay outside. They'll put out the fire and we'll come back in and do the show. But in the 1977 article, it's not the same one, it's a, a different one, he told the Associated Press how as he was going out through the door, that at first they were just kind of slowly filing out, and then the filing got faster and faster, yeah. and he said, quote, just seconds after we got out, the door we came through was engulfed with smoke and oh. flames. Now, he was actually seen, several people reported this, as he went out that door, he held the door open so that others could get out, out too. Uh-huh. And one last quote from him, the people were jamming the door and there was such a panic. I estimate there was a thousand people in the one room I was in just jammed in. So as he was trying to, like as they were trying to get out that door. Yeah. And he lost his musical director. Mm. That was one of the people who was who was lost in the fire. Just to kind of briefly go back to that idea of some of the other heroes, we've talked about the firefighters, mm-hmm. but there were some other heroes too, people from the community who who came together to help out afterwards. One man was one of these workers in the building. His name was Wayne Dammert. He was in his early 40s, and he talked about this evening, which was very traumatic for him. He said, quote, I saw bodies lying all over the place. Unbelievable. I bet I saw a hundred or more in the garden area, that beautiful garden area bodies were lying everywhere Mm. I asked one waitress are you religious and I don't even remember what she said but I said if you can pray you pray for the people in this area and I'll do it in this other area Mm. and I'd put my hand on their forehead and say God please take this soul to heaven I did that for maybe 50 bodies and he talked about how he tried Mm. to do what he could to kind of comfort Mm -hmm. people that night the National Guard they came in to help Mm -hmm. so they had National Guard army trucks who took the bodies from the supper club to the place where they had to set up their kind of makeshift morgue. Mm -hmm. It was only a mile away and they used the Fort Thomas, Kentucky Armory, which actually, it was like set up in basketball courts. So they end up laying all these people who had passed away on a floor. It looks like a a basketball court. It looks like a gym floor and they're just kind of stacked in rows. Teenagers volunteered. I saw that photo. They volunteered. I was like, oh, oh, oh. They would carry the bodies from the trucks on stretchers into the armory where they would be laid much for a teenager. Well, I saw an interview where one of those boys, years, decades later, he was a middle-aged man reflecting back, and he said, I I volunteered. He was only 13 at the time. He said, I didn't realize how that was going to affect me. Yeah. Of course, they were being as respectful as they could be. They had, you know, sheets, and they were covering the bodies, trying to give as much dignity as possible, but the identification process was just awful to begin with, but it was even 
harder because so many of the people had come from far away mm-hmm. and women in the panic they'd left purses behind yes. oh yes and and then you had people who were just burned beyond recognition Ugh. so there were just so many factors and this man who was reflecting on the experience said the nurses were the backbone of the operation within the armory he talked about how incredibly kind they were that they would just kind of of their own initiative they would take washcloths and they would you know kind of wipe smudges off the faces of the people who'd passed sometimes try to smooth down their hair just doing what they could Mm -hmm. to make them look presentable Mm -hmm. knowing that their loved ones were going to have to identify Mm -hmm. them and it was primarily the nurses who had to take those people down and they would have to just kind of go down the row and and when they felt like you know they knew they were looking they had the females in one Mm -hmm. row and males in another and they would have to kind of one Um, at a time just pull back and just think if you're looking at your family but you're having to see everybody else's family too until you get to your family and Yes, but this person who was talking about it, he said, he, he commented on how awful the process was altogether, but then when they would get to your their person. loved one, and he said, and then you'd just see them, like, collapse. Yeah. And then, of course, it'd be these nurses who would have to try to yeah. comfort them. Just absolutely horrific. Well, moving on to the investigation and mm-hmm. the aftermath. So, after an investigative team reviewed the evidence, a Campbell County grand jury ultimately ruled that the fire was not set intent. They decided it was faulty aluminum wiring. That was the culprit. Now mm-hmm. this went through, the, there was you know, the little to do. I think there was actually a place where they made one ruling and then they came back and ruled something different. But this is the ultimate determination. And this led to a nationwide movement to improve fire codes, which I remember that's something Brian yes. commented on, wasn't it? Yes, he had said that I think you can, you can find it in fire safety. This is the reason why we have these things. Yeah. Well, it was determined that the owners built additions to the building and as they were renovating it and building on additions they did not adhere to the fire codes that were in place at that time in fact i actually saw where julian carroll the the governor had said something about they didn't really have a clause at that time you know if a new building was built you had to meet these fire codes but what about if adding on things or or if it was an older building did you have to go back and did you have to like put those in after the fact yeah so that was that was a little gray area back then but in 1977 Kentucky State investigative report found that there were 10 factors that contributed to the quote loss of life or injury. I'm not reading all 10, okay. but I'm going to read a few of them. They said absolutely the overcrowding in the cabaret room. Yeah. The fact that tables and chairs jammed the aisles and the ramps which blocked pathways. There was no employee training and evacuation and emergency procedures. Mm-hmm. They had all of these flammable components like wood framing, lack of fire separation devices so that you know like if a fire started nothing it was just going to go like there was nothing to kind of a, a firewall oh, or a, a firewall block, right okay. and all of the things especially quote the decorative paneling and a lot of these things in the interior finish contributed to the spread of the fire i would think even those oil paintings you were talking about mm-hmm. and no audible alarm mm-hmm. no sprinkler systems yeah. as we've just said this led to drastic changes an associate professor at Northern Kentucky University, Dr. Brian Hackett, who actually helped, he was involved with an exhibit on the fire back in 2014. He had this quote, it changed mostly the fire laws. Now you have to have sprinklers. You have to have battery operated lights so that people can get out. You can't use certain materials to build things out of. And he goes on to say, you go to any restaurant in town and you're going to see a sign posted somewhere near the door that tells you how many people yeah. can safely be in that yeah, building. You do. That is because of the Beverly Hills Supper Club. Wow. Yeah, like, and he was just 
just giving some examples because obviously they affected more than those. But as Brian said, forever, forever, we have some new safety measures in mm-hmm. place because, because of, them. of this. Now, obviously, as you would expect, there were lots of lawsuits. I saw one source that said survivors filed more than $1.8 billion worth of lawsuits. Now, that's how much was filed. Yeah, yeah. I did not do a deep dive. I just saw a few things. So I don't know if this is the definitive information or data, but they that this was something that was groundbreaking. So many lawsuits were filed. A district judge in late 1977 ruled that all the lawsuits filed in federal court would be tried as a class action lawsuit. So kind of lumping them all together. And this was the first class action mass tort lawsuit in U.S. history. Oh, wow. They collectively, the families of the victims collectively received 30 million in that class action suit. Now, somehow more money was given because I saw a different article, a 2020 article published in the Dayton Daily News that said, quote, in all, victims and their families won about 43 million in settlements. Who paid? From who? Oh, I'm sure the the company, the... The, the supper club, the yes, people that owned it? Yes, okay. Yes. Did they have that much money to give out? Probably. Okay. Yeah. And they had insurance too, I'm oh, sure. Oh, sure. Yeah. Okay. It went on to say, previous settlements involved lawsuits against the club owners, insurance companies, a utility company accused of failing to inspect wiring, and makers of polyvinyl chloride and other products and materials used in the club. Oh. So that actually answered your question. Okay. I should have just finished the sentence. <laughs> I should have let you. There we go. <laughs> that seems like the end of the story, doesn't it, Ashley? It does. Guess what? What? <laughs> I was taken by surprise. What? Because I saved this for the end, because I thought you would appreciate this. Yeah. When I started to research this, the first thing I saw were articles from a month ago or two months ago, because just this past May, they dedicated a memorial. Oh, it took me so by surprise. I'm like, why are there so many articles from the last two months? So what happened was on the anniversary of the 1977 fire this past May, the Beverly Hills Memorial was dedicated along US 27 at Memorial Point Drive with about 300 people who came. Mm. The ceremony, of course, was, you know, I'm I'm sure very reverent and beautiful. I know they they said specifically that there were some moments of silence, Mm -hmm. that there were some prayers, and that they used back pipes at some point that have been beautiful the memorial itself features the names of those people who lost their lives it includes a list of local first responder units that responded to the fire it has a list of the federal and state fire safety regulations that were implemented Mm, because of the fire they have recollections of a firefighter and they have some photos of the beverly hills supper club and this was something that had to be worked out who's going to maintain it so Mm -hmm. the memorial site will become a park maintained by the city of southgate Mm. now what is interesting is I found out that not long after the fire, for years and decades, decades, family members, friends, people, you know, who survived it have pushed for some type of memorial. Mm -hmm. And then when they just said at some point down the road, we think we're going to do this, there was actually some pushback from, yes. So what happened? From who? Okay, here's what happened. This memorial is actually part of a development, okay? It's actually about 80 acres, and it's going to be, some of it's, I'm sure, already under construction right now, but I don't think it's finished. But it's 80 acres that's going to consist of an assisted living center, Mm -hmm. apartments, some homes, and it had two planned memorials. And this was all announced back in 2020. But this group of victims' families who banded together and called themselves 
themselves Respect the Dead. Mm -hmm. That's their organization. Mm -hmm. They were very concerned because it looked as though the plans were actually going to place things on the site where the cabaret room was. And And, that's where most of the people had had died. died. Mm -hmm. And I think, I don't know that you've, I don't know if you've mentioned this yet or not, but when it burned down there, they did not rebuild. It is just an overgrown field at this point. With with some pictures pictures, hanging that's, you know, that kind of show what was in this location. Yes. Well, Respect the Dead, together with some other survivors and first responders and people who felt the same way, they actually filed a suit later that same year, within a few months. So it was September of 2020 to try to stop the development from going forward. Obviously, some people just felt like it was disrespectful. They just didn't want anything on that site at, you know, at all. Mm -hmm. Other people believe that their loved one's remains may still be in that area. And they just, they didn't want that happening. So what ultimately happened was later in 2020, I believe Mm -hmm. it was December, they reached a settlement with the developers and those developers agreed they were going to include a deed that would restrict construction on the cabaret room site good so that's i think i think the plan now is the survivors and the families are going to maybe try to put a fountain or something oh that'd be nice that they something they choose and Mm -hmm. they want to design and i like that yeah a man who was present that night working as a busboy said to me this memorial represents closure it is important to have a place where the families and friends of those who died can go to remember those they lost it is important for our community to make sure we never forget. Mm-hmm. And then I ran across one last thing oh, no. that I want to share with you. There was a May 2021 WHAS 11 news segment that was called Unsolved. Mm-hmm. And this totally, again, took me by surprise. But I thought before we end, I would just share this because this is kind of a side note okay. to the story. We've kind of brought it to full closure, except for this that's that's kind of ongoing over here to the side. Not electrical fire is not, you know, what they're saying. Aluminum wiring. That's all a lie. Completely a lie. State officials ruled the fire accidental early on, but former employees didn't buy it. We are positive, without a doubt, that it was arson. They spent decades pushing for answers. This is room where it started. Begging for an investigation. That's where the guys were working during the day. They say they were met with pushback and excuses. So they started their own quest for answers. We know exactly what happened. And then a former journalist put all of the pieces in one place. Hi, I'm Peter Bronson. I'm the author of Forbidden Fruit, Sin City's Underworld and the Supper Club Inferno. I set out to find out what happened in the 1977 Supper Club fire, which is the the greatest tragedy in regional history. And it led me down a path to the mob. The teenage busboy remembered seeing workers in the room where the fire started earlier that day. He says he asked the property owners about it weeks later. I said they were working in the ceiling for over two hours that I saw. And he goes, well, we had no contract of work that day. And he goes, what did they say they were working on? I said, the air conditioning system. He goes, they lied to you. He goes, there was no AC in that room at all. It was the first sign that something wasn't right, but not the last. You look at the history of Northern Kentucky in this era. You can go back through the 70s, and every year, a major nightclub, casino, strip joint, restaurant is burned down by arson, by the mob. And then all of a sudden, here we go, 70, 71, 72, all the way up to 77. And what do you know? There's the Beverly Hills Supper Club, the biggest, most spectacular of all. So 
interesting, right? Yeah. I mean, it makes me want to know more. because I want to talk to that journalist guy. Well, he has a book. I want to read his book. I I looked it up. Now, I found it on Goodreads and Amazon. It did not have a lot of reviews. Okay. Not many people have read it. When did he put it out? I didn't look that up. Okay. But the people who read it gave it pretty good reviews. It's like around the four star mark. I know you like a good conspiracy theory. That was right up my alley. I was like, yes. And obviously, we know so little about it. Yeah. I mean, it makes you wonder how much, you know, like it's compelling. It, it makes you it makes you wonder how many people was there anybody else who saw those men mm-hmm. working that day? Or was mm-hmm. it just one person? Mm-hmm. You know, is, I would love to know more. Is there corroboration to yeah. that? You know, what kind of detail work went into the investigation that came up with this right. faulty wiring right. determination? You know, I would I would love to know. I would I would love to know more. I would too. Yeah. I'm gonna get that book. Oh, by the way, in case you're looking for it, it was called Forbidden Fruit, Sin City's Underworld and the Supper Club Inferno by Peter Bronson. All right, Peter, I'm going to read your book. (laughs) Armchair Psychologist. Well, that brings us to our armchair. Gosh, what can you say? I tried to think of of a great armchair question. It's just the most heartbreaking story ever. I couldn't even think of Mm -hmm. one. So it actually brought me back to something that that you often will ask at the end of one of our episodes. What what lessons can be learned from this? Right. What lessons? What lessons can you learn from this? Listen. Trust your gut. That wonderful busboy that got up there. If I I put if putting myself in there and of course we can't victim blame we cannot we cannot say it's your own fault that you didn't leave but getting up there if someone says to you there is a fire you need to exit believe them go ahead and leave what is it going to hurt okay Mm -hmm. maybe it's a hoax but at least you're now alive Mm -hmm. you know and it's also heartbreaking to me that in our human history multiple people have to die before anything will change Mm -hmm. how many stories have we covered Rebecca Schaefer you know Mm -hmm. things that happen somebody had to die and enough people have to die before we'll actually enact change. Why can't we do it before then? Because it has to affect the the person. It has to be enough that it affects people. Mm -hmm. Well, I don't think you're wrong, but on a slightly more... I guess, optimistic look, or maybe a more forgiving, maybe that's the way I'm, I'm, maybe this is a more forgiving perspective. I think sometimes people just have no idea that mm-hmm. that's going to happen. You yeah. live in your little world where you're like, it's well, a bubble. It's going to be fine. Mm-hmm. I'm, I've done everything right. I think, I think I've followed the rules or this isn't going to happen. And then it does. And when something horrific or tragic happens, all of a sudden, boy, do you learn from that? Right. I guess just be aware of your surroundings. Look around, be aware of everything where are the exits if something happens how will I get out of here have a plan because like you said there were split second decisions that was a matter of life and death and even those that made it out they still died because of the smoke you know I think I think that is that is a good point I think it's it's sad in our world today how often maybe unexpectedly you do end up in situations where you're in danger and you did not anticipate mm-hmm. that could happen mm-hmm. and and sometimes it could be something like just being out in society and, and something happens but but even other situations normal situations being on a plane right you know you're just flying a plane right I think there is something to be said for looking around you being aware of your surroundings what would be a good exit plan mm-hmm. what what would I do if and not 
not um, making yourself anxious, not right. making, not getting obsessed about it, right. but just kind of thinking through what are my options? What could I do right. to make sure that I stay safe? Brian laughs at me, but every time we go over a bridge, I'm always running through in my head. Okay. If the bridge collapses, do I take the seatbelt off before we hit the water? Or when we hit the water, what do I do? Do I roll the window down now? Or when, when do I do these things? And like, I always say, what's our action plan if something happens? Mm-hmm. Just always be aware of what are you going to do with something when something happens? And now I have a little seatbelt cutter and a breaker and I'll get that out of the glove box and hold it until we go get over the bridge. It goes back to, we've talked about fire families, you know, having your, your simple plan mm-hmm. of what would happen if a fire broke out in this house. Mm-hmm. Where would you go? Where would you exit? How would we know that all four of us or five of us or however many are safe? What you are know? we going to try to take out of the house? What are we leaving behind? Yeah. And having that conversation of don't take anything, get out, yeah, you get know, out. I mean, just absolutely. Some of those things, just simple conversations or simple awareness or simple plans could really um, matter, mm-hmm. I guess, in, in moments when your your tendency would be just to absolutely panic. Mm-hmm. Well, that was a really was sad, so sad story, but I, I do think there's something to be said for understanding what happens in our history, yeah, tragic or not. My cousin Lauren had a really great quote. She was talking about movies, but I think you could apply it to this. She said, there are good movies and then there are important movies. So this is not a good story, but it's an important story yes. because you need to know that this happened so that you can learn from history and so that hopefully it will never, ever, ever happen again. Absolutely. So I think it's an important story story and that we need to tell it even if it is hard and also to preserve the memory yes, of these people to honor those people yes to honor the people we lost and to honor the people who stepped up and, and risked to, their lives absolutely or took on very traumatic tasks to mm-hmm. try to serve others mm-hmm. so who are we gonna cheers Ashley? i would like to cheers that very first bus boy mm. that stepped on stage and in a calm voice told people here's what's happening here's where the exits are mm-hmm. and here's how you can get out of here walter, walter. the 18 year old bus yes. boy the first hero of the night i think we need to cheers him because he probably like like you said in the story saved a lot of lives all right cheers to you walter cheers If you love what we do, please rate and review our show. Or you can become a supporter by making a donation through buymeacoffee.com slash scandalwaterpod. Whether a single gift or a recurring monthly donation, it would go a long way towards supporting our work and allowing us to keep the tea brewing. At our website, www.scandalwaterpodcast.com, you can submit questions or your own story ideas, access our sources and show notes, see the merch we offer for sale, and more. You can Join the Scandalwater community through our Scandalwater Podcast Facebook page or follow us on Instagram or TikTok at Scandalwater Podcast. This episode was executive produced by Candy Thomas, that's me, and Ashley Raymer Brown, that's me. It was researched and written by Candy Thomas and edited by Ashley Raymer Brown. A special thank you to Josh Martin, who wrote, composed, and performed the Scandalwater theme and other music, Matt C. Adams, who created the artwork, and Joshua Reith, who designed our website and provides ongoing technical support. As a reminder, this podcast is purely for entertainment purposes. The thoughts and opinions of the host during each episode of Scandalwater are their own and do not reflect the opinions of any future guests, advertisers, or clearly professional psychologists. Thanks for listening.